0: volume two chapter ten of Willard's Weird by mary elizabeth braddon this LibriVox recording is in the public domain recording by lynn thompson chapter ten roses on a grave while bothwell was watching the builder's men upon the green hill beside the atlantic edward heathcote was slowly patiently laboriously following the thin thread of circumstantial evidence which was to lead him to the solution of leonie lemarque's fate he had taken this task upon himself in purest chivalry an uncongenial duty entered upon in unselfish devotion to the woman he loved he pursued it now with a passionate zest a morbid interest which was a new phase in his character never had he followed the doublings of some cunning old dog-fox across the moors and heaths of his native land with such intensity as he followed that unknown murderer of Leonie Lamarck That she had been murdered deliberately sacrificed as the one witness of a past crime was now his conviction He had ceased to halt between two opinions Leonie had gone to meet the murderer of her aunt and she had fallen a victim to the folly of the dying woman who had sent her to Seek protection from such a source Who was that murderer? And for what reason had he carried his helpless prey to a remote Cornish Valley? Why should he not have tried to get rid of her in the great wilderness of London? Where the crime would have excited much less curiosity and would have been less likely to be discovered? Entering deliberately into the thoughts of the assassin following out the working of his mind his fears his calculations his artifices it seemed to Heathcote that a man familiar with the line between Plymouth and Penzance might scheme out just such a murder as that which had been Committed might fix on the very spot at which the deed was to be done Knowing that at that particular point the palisades had been removed and the viaduct left unprotected He would speculate that the fall of a strange girl at such a spot would be accepted as purely accidental he would trust to his own cleverness for finding the way to disconnect himself from the catastrophe He would imagine that in the hurry and confusion following such an event it would be impossible for the murderer to be identified Who was to select from all the travelers in the train that one traveler whose arm had thrust the girl to her doom a Little cleverness and watchfulness on his part would render such identification impossible a man provided with a railway key could get from one carriage to another easily enough, in the surprise and horror of the moments following the girl's fall. Few men are quite masters of their senses during such moments, and all eyes would be turned towards the gorge at the bottom of which the girl was lying. Everybody's thought would be as to whether she was living or dead. Very easy in such a moment for an active man to pass from one carriage to the other, unobserved by any creature in or about the train Mr. Blumenlein's remark about the hidden door in the alcove had impressed Heathcote strongly the door opening into a dark and obscure court a narrow passage piercing from one street to another and with only a side door here and there leading into a yard and here and there the grated windows of a warehouse or an office an alley in which after business hours there were hardly any signs of human habitation heathcote inspected this passage after he left the merchant's office he followed it to its outlet into a narrow street which led him into another and busier street parallel with the rue lafitte a curious fancy possessed him and he made his way by narrow and obscure streets behind the grand opera and the grand hotel into the rue lafitte by this way which was somewhat circuitous and which led for the most part through shabby streets he avoided the boulevard altogether That speech of mr. Blumenline's haunted him like the refrain of a song The words repeated themselves over and over again in his mind with maddening reiteration Willard the speculator was one man, but there was another man of whom the world knew nothing and who went out and came in between dusk and dawn by that side door in the court It was a whole speculation on the part of the German merchant and might have very little foundation in reality Yet the fact that such a door had been made at Julian Moulad's expense implied a desire for independent egress and ingress a wish to be free from the espionage of porters and porters wives to go out and come in unobserved to have no comment made upon the hours he kept for such a man as willard had appeared in the eyes of the world for a hard-headed plodder a money-making machine this easy access to the boulevard and the pleasures of a parisian midnight would have been useless but for a man who led a double life who was the hard calculating man of business by day and who at night took his revenge for the toil and dullness of the money grubber's career in the dissipations of the gayest city in the world for such a man the facility afforded by the side door in the court would be invaluable Had willard been such a man Had willard lived a double life during the ten years of his Parisian existence Such a thing seemed to the last degree unlikely Difficult to suppose that he could have given his nights to pleasure and folly he who had succeeded as a foreigner in a field where native talent had so often failed He who had penetrated the innermost labyrinths of the financial world and had always been a winner in the hazardous game Where the reckless and the idle must inevitably end as losers He who had the flair for successful enterprises which had been spoken of to Heathcote as little short of inspiration he who had been respected by the cleverest men on the paris bourse looked up to as the hardest worker and keenest thinker among them all no such a man could not have given his nights to pleasure could not have rioted among foolish revellers betwixt midnight and morning to go back to his den in the early dawn and to begin a new day half rested bemused by wine and folly no such a man could not have habitually lived the boulevard life could not have been the associate of fools and light women He could not have so lived without the fact of his folly being known to everybody in Paris and Edward Heathcote had heard his rival praise for the sobriety and steadiness of his life Wondered at as a miracle of industry and good conduct a man of one idea and one ambition he had heard julian willard so spoken of by men who knew their paris he had heard his character discussed and sifted years ago at the time of his marriage with dora dalmaine that julian willard could have lived a profligate life was impossible but that theory of a double life did not necessarily imply dissipation or folly what of a man who concealed from the world his inner life the life of passion and emotion who abandoned himself in secretness and obscurity to his all-absorbing love for a woman whom he dared not acknowledge before society such a man might verily be said to live a double life and julian Willard might have been such a man heathcote looked at his watch when he entered the rue lafitte he had walked the distance in a quarter of an hour he had made a note of the number of the house in which marie prvol had lived it was one hundred and seventeen about halfway between the boulevard and the Rue Lafayette It was to this house that he now directed his steps impelled by the desire to see the rooms in which the beautiful young actress had lived If it were possible to see them In this dead season when so many of the residents of Paris were absent There was just the chance that some good-natured concierge and the concierge is always amenable to the gentle inducement of a five-franc piece might consent to admit a respectable-looking stranger to a view of the third floor of number one hundred and seventeen the house was a quiet reputable-looking house enough one of the older and smaller houses of the street untouched by the hand of improvement and of somewhat shabby appearance externally the person who opened the door and who occupied a little den at the back of the entrance hall was a woman of about forty Cleaner and fresher looking than the generality of portresses and caretakers She was decently attired in a smart cotton gown which fitted her buxom figure to perfection Her face was clean and her cap spotless She had a pleasant open countenance and Heathcote felt that he might believe anything she told him He asked if there were any apartments to be let in the house No the portress told him there were only old established families living there there had not been a floor to let for three years, indeed, not the third floor, for example, no, but why does Monsieur inquire especially about the third floor? The portress asked, looking at him keenly with her bright black eyes. I confess to having a particular curiosity about the third floor, replied Heathcote, judging that frankness would serve him best with his outspoken matron, and if by chance the family were absent. Monsieur would like to indulge a morbid curiosity Interrupted the portress, to see the rooms which were occupied by a beautiful woman who was murdered There was a time when I had twenty forty fifty such applications in a day when all the idlers in Paris came here to spy about And to question if the murder had been done in one of those very rooms instead of in the wood I should have made my fortune as it was, people stared and pried and touched things as if the very curtains and the sofa cushions had been steeped in blood. But that was ten years ago. I wonder that monsieur should feel any curiosity after all those years. You were living in this house ten years ago at the time of the murder? questioned Heathcote eagerly. Yes, monsieur, and for three years before that. I was with Madame Georges from the day she first entered this house to the day she was carried out of it in her coffin i am barbe leroux born giraud if you have heard of the murder of marie prvol you must have heard of barbe giraud her servant i was one of the chief witnesses before the juge madame i have read your evidence replied heathcote i am deeply interested in the history of that terrible murder and I rejoice in having met a lady who can if she pleases help me to unravel a mystery which baffled the police The police exclaimed Madame Leroux contemptuously the police are a parcel of no great things or they would have found the man Who killed my mistress and Monsieur de Maucroix in a week? Provided that he stopped in Paris to be found But it seems evident that he got away from Paris and instantly or he would have been taken red-handed I have reason to know that he was in Paris long after the murder, said Barb decisively. What reason? Pray consider, madame, that I am brought to this house by no idle curiosity, no morbid love of the horrible. It is my mission to discover the murderer of Marie Prvol. Give me your confidence, I entreat, madame. You, who loved your mistress, must desire to see her assassin punished. Barbe Roux shrugged her shoulders with an air of doubt. I don't quite know that monsieur yes i loved my mistress but i pity her murderer come we cannot talk in this passage all day will you walk into my room monsieur and seat yourself for a little while and then if you are anxious to see the apartment in which that poor lady lived it may perhaps be managed you are very good said heathcote slipping a napoleon into barbe broad palm had it been half a napoleon she would have considered herself repaid for ordinary civility but the larger coin secured extraordinary devotion she would in her own phrase have thrown herself into the fire for this gentlemanly stranger whose hat and coat were so decidedly english but who spoke almost as a parisian she ushered him into her little sitting-room the very sanctuary and stronghold of her domestic life since there was a bed in a curtained corner while there was a cradle sunning itself in a few rays of light which crept down the hollow square of brick and stone on which the window opened the pot au feu was simmering on a handful of wood ashes in a corner of the hearth and madame leroux's plethoric work-basket showed that she had been lately occupied in the repair of a blue linen blouse leroux is one of the porters at the central markets she explained it is a hard life and the pay is small but there are perquisites and between us we contrive to live and put away a little for the daughter there with a nod and smile in the direction of the cradle whence came the rhythmical breathing of a fat baby the only one inquired heathcote yes monsieur and you have lived in this house for thirteen years madame leroux nearer fourteen monsieur when all is counted i was a dresser at the porte st martin when mademoiselle prévol first appeared there it was a wretched life bad pay late hours hard work i caught cold from going to and fro on the winter nights thinly clad for i had an old mother to support in those days and i could not afford warm clothing i had a cough which tore me to pieces but i dared not give up my employment and my fear was of being sent away on account of bad health i had not a friend in paris to help me then it was monsieur that mademoiselle play took pity on me she spoke about me to a doctor who used to come behind the scenes and was on friendly terms with all the actors and actresses she asked him to prescribe for me but he told her that medicines would be of no use in my case i was young and i had a good constitution all that was needed for my cure was warmth and comfort I was not to go out of doors after dark or in bad weather if I wanted to cure myself I Almost laughed at the doctor for his advice I lived on the boulevard de la chapelle and had to walk to and fro in all weathers good or bad It was January at this time and the snow was on the ground It was then that Mademoiselle Prvol took you into her service speculated Heathcote Yes, monsieur there are not many ladies in her position who would have cared what became of a drudge like me She was new to the theater and she had just become the rage on account of her beauty the papers had all been full of her praises Cigars hats fans shoes were called after her the public applauded her songs and dances madly every night Admirers were waiting in crowds at the stage door to see her leave the theater in the shabby little 40 sous that used to take her home she dared not walk for fear of being followed and mobbed she was young enough to have had her head turned by all this fuss but she seemed to care hardly anything about it one honest man's love would be worth all this rubbish she said to me once when i asked her if she was not proud of being the rage with all paris i was proud of dressing her and i used to take the greatest care in everything i did for her and i suppose it was this that made her so good to me she knew that i loved her and the poor dressers love was honest love in a word monsieur she asked me if i would like to be her servant she was going to leave her mother's lodgings where she was not comfortable and to take an apartment of her own i might have to work hard perhaps she told me and i should have to be careful and saving as she had only her salary to live on she was not like those ladies who rolled their carriages and lived in the bois yonder but she would feed me and lodge me well and she would give me as much money as I was getting at the theater without either food or lodging naturally you accepted With delight monsieur and three days after I came to this house My young mistress had taken the third floor for five years The landlord put the rooms in order for her and she furnished them very modestly scantily even Partly out of her little savings since she had been at the theater partly on credit She was to pay so many francs a week to the upholsterer Till all was paid for she had no extravagant tastes no craving for finery or luxurious living if you had seen her rooms in those days You might have thought them the rooms of a nun all things so simple so neat so pure But there came a change afterwards I suppose There came a time when Monsieur Georges loaded her with presents and the apartment changed gradually under his influence He sent her easy chairs Velvet-colored tables, a bookcase, an escritoire, satin curtains, rich carpets, pictures, china, hot-house flowers. He showered his gifts upon her, but I knew that she would have been better pleased to live in her own simple way. She had a horror of seeming like those other ladies of the theatre, with their luxurious houses and fine clothes. She spent very little money on herself. She lived almost as plainly as a workman's wife was she called madame georges when she first came to this house no monsieur she did not even know the name of monsieur georges at that time she only knew that she had a mysterious admirer who came to the theatre every night who used to sit in a dark corner of a small private box close to the stage who never showed himself to the audience and who was always alone this was all she knew of monsieur georges in those days do you know how their acquaintance advanced from this point no monsieur i hardly know anything of the progress of their attachment there were letters gifts which came to the house and i know that in the spring nights of that first year my mistress used to walk home from the theatre escorted by monsieur georges but he never entered our apartment till after madame's return from england where she went during the summer vacation she had been very silent about her strange admirer she had told me nothing, but she had shed many tears on his account That was a secret which she could not hide from me She had spent many wakeful nights breathed many sighs when she told me she was going to England I thought all was over She had fought hard to be true to herself poor girl. She had struggled against her fate But this man's love had conquered her She did not tell you that she was going away to be married no monsieur but when she came back after a fortnight's absence she showed me her wedding-ring and she told me that she was to be called madame georges henceforward this i took to mean that monsieur georges had married her while in england and i believe it still he loved her too well to degrade her by making her his mistress he loved her well enough to murder her said heathcote i suppose that is about the highest flight for a lover he loved her as women are not often loved monsieur replied barbe with conviction i saw enough to know that from first to last he adored her that the jealousy which devoured him later the jealousy which made him act like a madman many times in my hearing was the madness of intense love i have listened outside the door trembling for my mistress's safety ready to give the alarm to the house to rush in and rescue her from his violence and then the storm was lulled by her sweet words her gentleness and he became like a penitent child yes monsieur he loved her as few men love if this was so why did he keep her in such a discreditable position why did he not introduce her to the world as his wife i cannot tell there must have been reasons for his secrecy he seldom came to this house before nightfall he never showed himself anywhere with madame till after the theatre. Since he was rich enough to be lavish, why did he not remove her from the stage? That was one of the causes of unhappiness towards the last, monsieur. It was his wish that she should leave the theatre, and she refused. I believe it was at this time she became acquainted with monsieur de Maucroix. You stated before the juge d'instruction that you believed the acquaintance between your mistress and monsieur de maucroix to have been an innocent acquaintance is that still your belief it is my conviction monsieur i never doubted my dear mistress's honour though i doubted her wisdom in allowing herself to think about monsieur de maucroix it must be pleaded for her excuse that he was one of the most fascinating men in paris at least that is what i have heard people say of him i know that he was young handsome and remarkably elegant in his appearance and now tell me how you happen to know that georges remained in paris after the murder did you ever see him yes monsieur it is rather a long story if i were not afraid of tiring you madame leroux began deprecatingly you will not tire me i want to hear every detail however insignificant then monsieur you must know that in consequence of madame's kindness and of the lavish generosity of monsieur Georges, and also by reason of a good many presents from monsieur de maucroix who threw about his money with full hands i was very comfortably off at the time of madame's sad death i had buried my poor mother two years before and i had been able to save almost every penny of my wages i felt therefore independent of service the term would have to be paid by madame lemarque who inherited all her daughter's property and as she had the horror of the rooms in which her poor daughter had lived and could not bear to be alone in them for an hour she asked me to stay till the end of the quarter then as i told you people came in crowds to see the rooms and as i had power to show them or to refuse to show them just as i pleased i need not tell you that i made a good deal of money in this way I Did not make a trade of showing the rooms monsieur I never asked anyone for money But on the other hand I did not refuse it when it was offered to me This continued for some weeks then came the sale all the handsome articles of furniture all the pictures and ornaments Fetched high prices They were bought by fashionable people as souvenirs of the beautiful Marie Preval but the plainer furniture the things which my mistress had paid for out of her own earnings were sold very little and these I bought I Had conferred with the landlord and he had agreed to retain me as his tenant With the furniture which I bought at the sale and with other things which I picked up cheaply among the second-hand dealers I contrived to make the rooms very comfortable as furnished lodgings and from that time to this I have carried them on with reasonable profit Three years later. I was able to take the fourth floor and two years after that on the second floor falling vacant i ventured to become tenant for that also there remains only the first floor which is let to an old lady of ninety and if providence prospers leroux and me we ought to be able to take the first floor by the time the old lady dies you will then be lessees of the whole house a bold speculation madame but one which with your prudent habits will doubtless succeed but to return to this man georges whom you saw in Paris after the murder. I was accustomed to go every week to the cemetery of Pere-Lachaise, monsieur, to look at my dear mistress's grave and to lay my humble offering of flowers upon the marble slab which had been placed there at madame Lamarck's expense. It bore for inscription only the one word Marie. Madame Lamarque dared not describe her daughter as a wife. She would not record her name as a spinster. Marie was enough for the first month after her burial I found the slab covered with flowers wreaths crosses bouquets of the costliest flowers that can be bought in Paris. I noticed that among the variety of flowers there was one wreath frequently renewed and always the same-a wreath of marechal nil roses and I knew that these had been her favourite flowers the flowers she always wore and had about her in her rooms. I had often heard her call the maréchal Neil the king of roses Months passed and on my weekly visits with my poor little bunch of violets or snowdrops or jonquils I found always the wreath of yellow roses All through the winter when even other token had ceased to adorn the grave When the beautiful actress was beginning to be forgotten the yellow roses were always renewed i felt that this could be done only by someone who had devotedly loved marie préval for her admirers of the theatre her death had been a nine days wonder they had covered her grave with flowers and then gone away and forgotten all about her but the wreath of yellow roses renewed again and again all through the dark dull winter was the gift of a steadfast love a grief which did not diminish with time I questioned the people at the gates, but they knew nothing of the hand which laid those flowers on my mistress's grave. I hoped I should some day surprise the visitor who brought them, but though I altered the days of my visits, never going two weeks running on the same day, I seemed no nearer to finding out that constant mourner. At last, early in the February after my mistress's death, I resolved upon going to the cemetery every day and remaining there in view of the grave as long as my stock of patience would allow me I Spent three or four hours there for six days running till my heart and feet were alike weary But I had seen no one The roses had not been renewed The seventh day was a Saturday the day. I always devoted to cleaning the apartment Which was now in the occupation of an elderly gentleman and his wife I? Was not able to leave the house till late in the afternoon the day had been foggy and the fog had thickened by the time I left the omnibus which took me to the Rue de la Roquette At the gates of the cemetery it was so dark that if I had not been familiar with the paths which led to my mistress's grave I should hardly have been able to find my way to the spot the grave is in a narrow path midway between two of the principal walks and as I turned the corner between two large and lofty monuments I saw a man standing in the middle of the path in front of Marie Prévol's grave a Tall figure in a furred overcoat a figure. I knew well I had not an instant's doubt that the murderer of my mistress stood there before me looking at his victims grave Did you accost him alas? No, he was not more than a dozen yards from the spot where I stood and I quickened my footsteps intending to speak to him but at the sound of those footsteps he looked round saw a figure approaching through the fog and hurried off in the opposite direction I ran after him But he had reached the other end of the path before I could overtake him And when I got there it was in vain that I looked for any trace of him either right or left of the pathway He had disappeared in the fog which was thicker at this end of the path as it was on lower ground My mistress's grave was on the slope of the hill and there the fog was less dense i went back to the grave and looked at the flowers on the slab a wreath of yellow roses fresh from the hothouse where they had been grown lay on the marble surrounding that one word marie are you sure that the man you saw was georges perfectly sure i knew his figure i knew his walk i could not be mistaken in him and who else was there in Paris who would come week after week in all weathers to lay the roses my mistress loved upon her grave? Many had admired her on the stage But only two men had been allowed to love her to know anything of her in her private life of those two one was the murdered man Maxime de Maucroix the other was the murderer Georges. Did you find the flowers renewed after this day or did the murderer take alarm and avoid the cemetery? the roses were renewed week after week for more than a year after that foggy saturday afternoon but i never again saw the person who laid them there i had indeed no desire to see him again i had satisfied myself as to his identity i did not want to betray him to the police the shedding of his blood might have avenged my dear mistress's death but it could not have restored her to life it could have been no consolation to her in purgatory to know that this man whom she had once loved who had loved her only too well was to die on the scaffold for her sake i Hated him as the murderer of my mistress, but I pitied him even in the midst of my hatred I pitied him for the reality of his love You say the flowers appeared on the grave for more than a year after that February afternoon said Heathcote Did the tribute fall off gradually? Was the wreath renewed at longer and longer intervals till it ceased altogether or did the offering stop suddenly? Suddenly in the March of the second year after Madame's death I found a faded wreath on my weekly visit and that faded wreath has never been replaced That would be in March 1874 Yes monsieur you never saw Georges again either in the cemetery or anywhere else never I have been told that he was a French-Canadian have you any knowledge as to his country or his family history None monsieur. I always supposed him to be a Frenchman. I never heard him speak in any other language Did he speak like a Parisian? No monsieur He did not speak exactly like the people about here or the actors at the port Saint-Martin I used to think that he was a provincial did you hear from your mistress what part of England she had visited I heard monsieur, but have forgotten the names of places were strange to me such queer names But I know it was a place in which there were lakes and mountains Was it in Scotland or Ireland? No, it was in England. I am sure of that And now if monsieur would like to see the third floor Heathcote said he was most anxious to do so and he followed Madame Leroux upstairs to a landing out of which the door of the apartment opened the rooms were small and low but well lighted and with a balcony looking out on the street the little salon was neatly furnished with those very chairs and tables which marie prévol had bought out of her first economies as an actress the things were meagre and shabby after the wear and tear of years but the perfect neatness and cleanliness of everything made amends was one of those admirable managers who by sheer industry and good taste can make much out of little there was a tiny dining-room opening out of the salon with a window overlooking chimneys and backs of houses and this window had been filled with painted glass in the time of monsieur Georges. all the other elegances and luxuries with which he had embellished the cosy little rooms had been disposed of at the sale of marie prévol's effects there had been venetian mirrors and girondoles on the walls of the dining-room barbe explained madame used to light all the wax candles when she came in from the theatre there were candles on the supper table with rose-coloured shades there were fruit and flowers always everything was made to look pretty in honour of monsieur Georges, and there had to be some delicate little dish for supper and choicest wine monsieur was not a man who cared much what he ate or drank but madame wished that everything should be nicely arranged that the supper-table should look as inviting as at the cafe de paris or at the maison d'or the bedroom opened out of the salon there was a dressing-room between that and the little back room in which barbe had slept when she was in mademoiselle prévol's service on her occasional visits léonie lemarque had occupied a truckle bed in barbe's room how is it that léonie lemarque in all her visits never happened to see monsieur georges inquired heathcote when he had looked at all the rooms peopling them in his imagination with the figures of the actress and her lover madame took good care to prevent that she told me that monsieur georges hated children and that the little one was to be kept out of his way did he never spend his mornings here was he only here at night only at night it was for that reason madame Lamarque used to call him the night bird I think she was very angry because she was never allowed to see him never invited to supper Monsieur Georges used to take a cup of coffee early in the morning And he left the house before most people were up as early as five o'clock in summer never later than half-past six in winter End of chapter 10 End volume 2